Lachem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Ted Merwin. Ted is Associate Professor of Religion and Judaic Studies at Dickinson College, Pennsylvania, where he is founding director of the Milton B. Asbel Center for Jewish Life. He writes about Jewish theater, dance, and food for the New York Jewish Week and other major publications and magazines. He's the author of the recently published Pastrami on Rye, An Overstuffed History of the Jewish Deli. Welcome, Ted. Thank you. So happy to be here. Great to have you. Um, my only regret is that we're not meeting at the deli after reading your oh, book. Oh, me too. <laughs> Would be much more fun, but next time. Yeah. So picking up on the subhead of your book, you managed to uh, pack a lot into the telling of the story, and it's uh, really a fun read and I think an interesting way to consider Jewish culture in terms of immigration, acculturation, and assimilation. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the role of Delhi. Well, I think one of the things that I had first assumed when I started working on this project was that the Delhi was really an important feature of immigrant Jewish life in New York. Um, and I found very quickly that that was not the case, that even though I think many of us tend to think of the deli and the foods that are served in the deli as kind of, you know, Eastern European uh, Ashkenazic cuisine, uh, for want of a better word, um, that actually there were very few delis on the Lower East Side of New York. Um, and that the deli really came into its own, not um, in that generation, but in the following generation, or the second generation, when uh, Jews started to move out of the Lower East Side uh, to Brooklyn, to the Bronx, to Upper Manhattan, and um, to really also move into the mainstream of American society. In terms of looking at it as a generational um, or a defining aspect of generations, and again, thinking of it in terms of the immigrant and assimilation, um, and you write about the role of the deli as the third space how do, how do you explain that? Uh, well, the third space is actually a concept that was developed by a sociologist named Ray Oldenburg. And what he was thinking about was, you know, what are the places where we go to be with other people uh, who are not our family or close friends, um, but where we really go to weave the bonds of community. So um, not work, which I guess would be like the first place, and not home, which would, you know, be the second, but but the third place where many of us spend a lot of our time, um, you know, really out in public, but also being able to, uh, you know, encounter each other in a, in a way that enables us to feel like we are part of the community. So, um, and that's what he says is really something that nurtures democracy. So the question that I started with was what would be that type of space in Jewish life? And uh, for many people, that would be the synagogue. But certainly for, for many who are not so religious or who are not, uh, who are not moved by what goes on in the synagogue, uh, you know, there would be other spaces that, uh, for, the, for the immigrant generation, perhaps the Yiddish theater. But for the next generation and perhaps the generation after that in American Jewish life, I was trying to suggest that the deli really became that space par excellence because it was where... Jews could come together to eat these foods that they associated with their past or with Eastern European Jewish heritage. Um, but they also were very much American spaces in the sense that eating out was not really 
big part of of Jewish culture. Um, there weren't a lot of restaurants in, you know, Eastern Europe, for example. Uh, Jews couldn't afford to eat out. It was only when they came to America and started to have a little bit more disposable income that the idea of eating in public became something that was popular and became a part of Jewish culture in the same way that it was part of the overall American culture. So to be able to eat foods that they associated with their with their culture, um, but to be able to eat them in an American way, uh, in, a, in a kind of public space, was something that I think in many ways made the deli such a such a popular thing because Jews could be both American and Jewish at the same time. And let me ask you how kosher figures into that. Uh, well, kosher, I think, figures into it less and less over time. <laughs> right. As Jews um, really, starting in the 1920s, as the level of observance of kashrut really declined very precipitously. And so even though there certainly had been kosher delis, and there still are kosher delis nowadays, although really very few, I would say, um, the, um, you know, the majority of Jews, even if they um, kept kosher at home, weren't necessarily keeping strictly kosher when they, when they went out. So in some ways, my book really traced these two parallel phenomena, the, the kosher deli, which was mostly identified with the outer boroughs, um, with particular neighborhoods in Brooklyn and the Bronx and so on, uh, where the corner deli, the corner kosher deli, really was in many ways the cornerstone of the ethnic neighborhood. It was just the place where everybody came together. And the quote-unquote non-kosher, kosher-style deli, which was very much associated with the theater district and with places like first in the 20s with Lindy's and Rubens and then in the 30s with um, the stage deli and the Carnegie deli. Um, and these were places that were hangouts for the celebrities, the stars of stage and screen. And so these were both equally, I would say, important phenomena. I mean, for, um, you know, for, for Jews to be able to feel connected to their culture, I think the kosher deli, um, particularly in their home neighborhoods, is very important. But to be able to come into the city and to be able to be part of this whole ambiance of glitz and glamour and so on that the non-kosher deli promoted was was just as important as well at a time when Jews really wanted to feel like they had a future in America, that even though there was very intense anti-Semitism between the two world wars, that um, they had a space they could call their own, they could sort of fantasize about being important and famous, <laughs> um, even though they, they weren't yet. And so that's why the walls were covered with pictures of, of celebrities and the menu covers and the sandwiches themselves were named after the stars of the day. So that there was something very exciting, I think, for Jews about being in that kind of an atmosphere at a time when they themselves knew that they weren't necessarily ready for prime time in terms of their place or stature in American society. I, I enjoyed reading uh, about that sort of um, <laughs> the coexistence of the theater and the delicatessen and their proximity to one another and sort of what it gave birth to. You mentioned, you know, I mean, this is, these are things I remember from my childhood, the photos of the personality and the salmon just named after this and that person. Um, and you use one example, which is Ruben's delicatessen. And I wonder if you can talk about that in terms of its place as a bridge between two worlds um, and 
you know, how that became such a, a famous sandwich. It's an institution. What do you think the takeaway is with that, and, and why focus on Reuben? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think that it's necessarily just Reuben's. I mean, I think it's interesting that the Reuben sandwich, you know, is definitely a kind of flagrantly non-kosher sandwich in that it's a combination of, of meat and cheese, although it's not pork, so I guess you could say it could be worse <laughs> in a kosher sense. But um, I don't think it's just particularly that sandwich. I think it's the idea of meat, really, as being a symbol of luxury, as being a symbol of affluence, as being... Um, you know, something that really was very prized, um, at least in Eastern European Jewish life, because there was so little access to it. Um, and so I think it's very revealing that the delis that sprang up in New York and other places in the United States were so focused on meat. And, um, and there were places where you went to go and, and not just eat meat, but, but sort of see and be seen. <laughs> Eating meat, and 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 I think that something that's definitely we take for granted nowadays because we have fast food hamburgers you know everywhere, but it didn't used to be that way. That and I mean, if you think of Hatia Diner's work, for example, which has been very um, much an inspiration for me and and her work, uh, her book especially Hungering for America, which is about um, you know the contrast between what it was like for the Irish, the Italian, and the, and the Jewish immigrants um, back in their countries of origin, and then once they arrived on these shores. And, and so she writes in that, that book about the fact that, you know, meat was something that, um, you know, really in, in many ways I think symbolized the American dream, uh, the ability to eat meat. And, um, and so I think Rubens was a place that was about celebrity, as I said, but it was also very much about meat. The Rialto menu was another one that felt to me when, uh, when I saw it that there was a lot to unpack with that, yes? Well, I, I mean, I have a, a photo of a, of a menu from the Rialto Delicatessen, which I found really fascinating because it shows a very fashionably dressed couple sitting um, at a table in what looks like a very glamorous setting with, um, with a, like a large fern, you know, next to the table, and a waiter, you know, in, in fancy you know, clothing, who is serving them out of a, you know, he's like listing off the top of the chafing dish. And um, and yet, you know, when you open the menu and look at what's there, it's like, you know, corned beef sandwiches. Like, I don't <laughs> think corned beef sandwiches were being served by tuxedoed waiters, you know, from chafing dishes. And yet, I found it, you know, really revealing in terms of the way that Jews wanted to see themselves um, on the outside as contrasted to how they really kind of felt about themselves on the inside, that, you know, even though these delis were not exactly necessarily places for gourmet, fine dining kinds of experiences, because they didn't tend to even have tablecloths, um, and you ate with your hands, <laughs> and there was something very primitive about the whole eating experience. And yet, you know, Jews still saw this, you know, kind of getting dressed up and going out to eat, even in a deli, as being something that really kind of put them on the same footing as other people in the society who were much more successful and much more assimilated, let's say, or much more acculturated or much more successful than, than they were. And, you know, so I, I think that that menu cover, um, which is different from a lot of other menu covers, um, you know, for example, as I was saying before, I mean, the, you know, menu covers for delis tended to have, you know, caricatures of, on them, or the Carnegie Deli had 
pictures of different landmarks in New York City, like the like the New York Coliseum, um, and and that was suggesting something else that the Carnegie Deli saw itself as just as much, you know, a place that a visitor to the city had to go to in order to really have the experience of being in New York as any of the skyscrapers or any of the other landmarks that that people visited. And so I think Delhi sort of marketed themselves in different ways or, or saw themselves in different ways, but it was all part of this same, um, you know, very kind of um, tremendous aspiration that, that Jews had to see themselves as, you know, kind of at a higher stage of their, of their development or of their entrance into American society than they had reached yet. And yet there was a lot of confidence, I think, that summed up in that, that they were going to get there. That even though, for example, in the 20s, when Rubens and, and Lindy's were at their height, um, there was tremendous anti-Semitism. I mean, it was probably the most anti-Semitic decade in American history. Jews were, you know, demonized in all kinds of ways, as being communists, as being anarchists, and um, there were all kinds of things that were going on. And yet, there was this sense that somehow we're kind of on the verge of breaking through in a way that wasn't going to happen, actually, until after World War II. And by the time that happened, ironically, Delhi's already were starting to decline because Jews were moving to the suburbs, and they weren't part of that same urban fabric anymore. They didn't need Delhi's in the same way. And, and where do you see this, and I think it would be safe to say it's the fourth generation. Um, do you see them in today's sort of landscape? Where do I see them today? Yeah, do, yeah. Um, do, they, do they have a place? Do they have a role? Have they evolved or morphed or reimagined themselves? Um, yes, I would say definitely. I mean, a lot of the kosher delis have closed. Um, New York boasted 1,550 kosher delis um, in the 1930s, at the height of the Great Depression. That was the kind of the, actually the high watermark of delis in New York. That's a staggering, absolutely astonishing number. Um, now they're obviously much, much fewer, and that's just kosher delis. <laughs> um, nowadays, there's obviously a much lower number than that. Um, there are really only a handful that are left because there have been such high-profile closings of delis in recent years, including both the stage and the crime. Um, but there are delis that have also opened up. There are new delis that have opened, and especially, I think, on the, on the east and west coast, not as much in the interior of the, of the country, but that have been opened up by sort of a new generation of of entrepreneurs who are Jewish, who um, you know grew up eating these kinds of foods, but are trying to reinvent them in a 21st century way. So smaller portions, um, you know, organic vegetables, uh, you know, grass-fed beef, things like that, and and also more gourmet types of you know um, you know versions of dishes, and and also a lot of kind of mashups, a lot of um, you know Jewish and Cuban, for example, you know, in, in Miami Beach. Or you know Jewish and Asian you know in California something like that so that you really um, I mean I think they're really catering to obviously a, a generation that um, is much more interested in health for example Delhi food was never seen as particularly healthy and also you know really doesn't want to limit itself to just eating the same kind of thing over and over again which is what kept the deli in business for so many years was you know so many people who kept wanting to keep eating the same thing constantly and 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 weren't interested in branching out beyond that until 
they, you know, went up to, to World War II or whatever and discovered there was a whole world of other cuisines out there and came back and, and started to, um, in many ways, you know, eat all different, you know, eat a lot of different kinds of things and, and to not just limit themselves to those things that they had grown up on. Um, but nowadays you also have a lot of non-Jews who are eating deli food. And my sense is that the newer breed of delis, the neo-retro, as some people have called them, delis, are really catering to a mostly non-Jewish clientele. So how long, you know, I mean, I guess it's a question of trends and fads and things like that in terms of how long those delis can stay in business. Some of them have already closed, like DGS and uh, DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., but others um, are, are, really going, are really going strong, uh, like uh, Y Sons, for example, in San Francisco, or Saul's in Berkeley, mm-hmm. uh, or Wexler's in, in Los Angeles, um, which is expanding and doing more catering and you know, has been really successful. Because a lot of the, you know, sort of the staple or standard foods that a delicatessen serves, the corned beef, pastrami, and so on, yes, have become ubiquitous. In our culture, they're sold everywhere. You know, you don't have to go to a deli to eat them. But to have a really, really high-quality pastrami sandwich, you know, you can't get that from Subway or Quiznos or, or whatever. Um, there's still something that these places are offering that is very labor-intensive to create, to to, to make, um, and really requires just a lot of effort and a lot of care and a lot of knowledge in order to produce it. You know, in a real high-quality way. And I think people will always want that. You know, people will always respond to that. It's just not the kind of thing that you're going to be able to find very easily um, outside of certain, you know, certain major metropolitan areas where delis will, you know, I think continue to come and go uh, for the foreseeable future. I think Mile End is a good example. Mile End is a very good example. Mile End in Brooklyn is a, is a very good example of, of bringing in a, a Montreal, you know, type of smoked meat um, thing, which is slightly different from pastrami, and really becoming very successful with it. But Mile End also is, I mean, I think it's like there are like six tables. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny little mm-hmm. place. And uh, so, you know, when you think of the, the deli as this, like, big restaurant, you know, um, either New York or Miami Beach or in L.A. or whatever, um, you know, I don't know how long that's going to that's gonna be around um, those places have mostly closed. They just haven't been able to do. You know, the profit margin on a on a pastrami sandwich is just not very high, given the fact that it does take so much time and expense to to make it. And beef prices have been really high, um, and a lot of people aren't eating beef anymore. So <laughs> there are a lot of things that have really militated against the success of the deli. The fact that there are some that are still able to be successful in some ways, I think, is is, is somewhat amazing and miraculous. Well, before I let you go, quick question: um, How does deli figure into your life, um, you know, as a child, as a grown-up, uh, in terms of your writing the book? Um, I mean, for me, it was very much a connection to my to my grandparents, who were very much in that generation that I was talking about, that second generation of American Jews, for whom religious observance was not particularly important, but who were very much steeped in Jewish culture, and who really only ate Jewish food. <laughs> Um, and so for me, it was really a way of trying to understand what their generational experience was like and, um, you know, how they really expressed their Jewish identity. And so um, I didn't grow up with much of that at all. I and mean, I grew up in a very secular Jewish family that, um, in which neither Jewish religion or culture was particularly prominent. 
so um, it wasn't until I got to college that I started to get interested in Judaism and wanted to, to, to learn about it. And so, you know, I still feel like I'm in some ways a little bit of an outsider, even to, to Jewish culture. And um, I'm still learning about it, and I'm still trying to understand what it means to me. Um, I love eating in delis, but I can't say that, um, you know, that's why I wrote the book or anything like that. In many ways, the book isn't about food. It's mm-hmm. really about American Jewish history as seen through the lens of a particular type of business establishment <laughs> um, that just happened to be the deli because that was what I found to be so, you know, such an important element in American Jewish life. Um, but it could have been about something else, you know, if I had found that that something else was kind of the place where American Jews came together, but the place where American Jews came together ended up being the deli. Well, it's, it's a wonderful read, and as I think I mentioned at the um, beginning, I found it fascinating to read it in terms of giving some historical context to the Jewish experience um, and placing it in the deli, because there, there's a lot there's a lot there to work with um, under that umbrella. Um, so thank you again um, for joining me and for the book. Uh, for our listeners, the book is Pastrami on Rye, an overstuffed history of the Jewish deli. It's available in bookstores throughout the country as well as here at the Yiddish Book Center on our and on-site. And it just came out in paperback ah. um, this fall. Great. Um, so uh, a delicious read, if I may. No. Um, <laughs> thank you. And um, drop by with the next book. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a podcast of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm Sammy Keats, and I manage the English Language Bookstore at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to episode 199, photographer Rebecca Lepkoff, where it's intriguing to hear Rebecca's husband, Eugene, and her son Daniel give their impression of the life and work of a person they know so intimately. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.